Okay, we'll go ahead and take a moment and dismiss children for Children's Church. So any who are four years old up through second grade, if you'd like to, you can head to room 107. Well, one of my first uh, times visiting a foreign country, I, I picked up a book beforehand just to prepare myself for a little bit of what I might be getting into to learn uh, about the country I'd be visiting. This was not one of those vacation spots. Uh, in fact, it was a country I was going to. It was run by a dictator. He had a pretty good reputation, a long-standing, about a 30-year reputation for intimidation and corruption. So the, the very warm and uh, kind of inviting title of the book that I picked up was, was called The Fear. And um, it told of the stories and uh, the violence, the mass murder, forced starvation, all of the things that this president of this country had done in his tenure. You know, in a context of a country like that, it would probably be no surprise to us to find out that it, there was not a healthy, open, public dialogue. You, you could not say what you wanted to say. In fact, I was warned of things to stay away from as far as topics go when preaching in that country or talking about uh, things, especially politically. Uh, there was not warm, open dialogue of questions you could ask and topics you could discuss. In fact, uh, during the reign of this dictator in that country, it was not uncommon to catch news stories of journalists or rival politicians just simply disappearing. You would show up missing, you would never hear about them again. And what was their crime? You know, the crime for many of these people that would go missing was simply asking questions, uh, questions about how maybe the country could get healthier, uh, how they could move forward. And, and so here you had a context where one side would be trying to ask questions, the other side just simply trying to silence these questions, and that always seems to be a recipe of unhealth, no, no matter the context. If that's the case in a home, if that's the case in a church, if that's the case in a city or a school or a country, if you have people who are desirable to ask questions and people who are doing nothing but simply wanting to squash and silence those questions, that is never a healthy context that seems to always be a recipe for disaster. The passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning begins with some challenging questions for the Apostle Peter. And we stop for a moment to just consider, how is he going to handle these questions? I mean, he is the Apostle Peter, after all. You know, would he ignore these questions? Would he refuse to answer them? Would he criticize the people for asking these questions? This morning, we're going to be opening up to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be beginning that chapter. And it's essentially a retelling of Acts chapter 10. In fact, um, Acts chapter 10 will end up being retold before it's all said and done in the book of Acts four different times. It gives you the idea that it was something very important that took place. Uh, just by the sheer space that we have in Scripture of this story of Cornelius and Peter meeting, and by the fact that it's retold four times, 
It, that leads commentators like R.C. Sproul to say this is probably and likely one of the most important chapters in all of the New Testament. Acts chapter 10 is this unlikely meeting between Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and the apostle Peter, who was a Jew, and Cornelius inviting him into his home for fellowship and a meal. And so it's less shocking to us today because we're not necessarily familiar with those cultures and those customs. But in biblical days, this was unheard of. This is the only instance that we have in scripture of this even happening up to this point. And this would have been a shocking thing for a Jew to go in, receive fellowship with a Gentile, and eat with him. But this is the context of our Acts chapter 11 this morning. It is a very important retelling of a significant event that takes place in Acts chapter 10. The retelling of this, though, will also do something for us today with a little bit of a twist. It's going to actually retell the material that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, but it comes as an explanation with what could otherwise have been a very divisive situation where you have people challenging Peter with questions about what took place, and Peter, is he going to or not going to answer these questions in a respectful and truthful and helpful manner? So I've titled this morning's message, Does Church Unity Mean No Disputes? Does church unity and Christian unity mean that there can never be disputes among Christians trying to get at the truth? We'll be looking at the first 18 verses of Acts chapter 11 this morning. I titled the message this way for two reasons. One, there might be some people that think that any or all disagreements or disputes among Christians are wrong, that there's no place for that. I think that the passage of Scripture we'll be looking at this morning will dispel that notion that just because there's disagreements or disputes among Christians doesn't inherently make those things wrong. But secondly, even though the main thrust of the passage that we're looking at this morning, it's going to reinforce the gospel mission. The main thrust of all of the material that we're going to be looking at is this, that God in Christ, in sending Christ to die on the cross, to be buried and to resurrect again from the dead for the salvation of sinners is a message that is to be spread and received all over the world. This was not exclusively a Jewish message. This is a message for the aborigine living in no man's land. This is a message for the highest king living in his castle. This is a message for the youngest. This is the message, a message for the oldest. It is that Jesus saves sinners of whom we all are. And so this is a message that is to spread. That is what is in Acts chapter 10. It is the beginning and the thrust of the Gentile mission that is to scatter to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit was given to Christians for this very reason that they would be emboldened and strengthened with clarity to take this message to the ends of the earth. That is the main thrust of Acts chapter 10 and the retelling of this in Acts chapter 11. However... What's going to take place today in the retelling of this by Peter also will give us a beautiful picture of how Christian disputes can be handled in a God-honoring and God-glorifying way. We're going to find this passage very interesting. It opens with a dispute 
Peter will give his defense. He will answer the questions. And at the end, we are told very surprisingly, all of them together glorified God for what he was doing. Not all disputes end that way, right? Not all of our human disagreements end with all parties coming together and giving praise to God, but this text has this. It's going to be wonderful for us to walk through this this morning to see exactly how this unfolded, what is the message that God is communicating through Peter to the Jews in Jerusalem that the gospel is for all people and is to go forward to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 11, let's turn there this morning. This first point we're going to look at is this idea that Peter gets questioned, that there is a dispute that comes up and he is being challenged. These are the first three verses. And so we could say about these verses is this, it is a healthy church environment where questions can be asked. This is a healthy environment where people are able to put forward questions and to put forward um, challenges without them being squashed and silenced like a dictator in a country. And so let's look at Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That's a beautiful way to just say they became believers. They heard what God was saying through his messenger. They received it with joy. They took it in and they believed it. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So that is the dispute. That is what they are calling him on the carpet to to give an answer about. This is what they are questioning him for. What's the context? That miraculous meeting between Peter and Cornelius had taken place in a city called Caesarea. That's about 70 miles from Jerusalem. The news of it was so incredible, it didn't take very long to spread throughout Judea, that entire region, and reach Jerusalem. So when Peter's pastoral travels, if you'll remember, this is what Peter was doing. He was going and visiting believers in different cities. As those travels were over, he heads back to Jerusalem, really the home base there where the apostles were, and there's a group of people waiting to speak with him. Now, I don't know if this means that they were like watching at the gates for when Peter would cross the threshold, if they were, as it were, waiting at the airport for him. Uh, We're not told how eagerly or how um, hotly they brought this accusation against him, but they were waiting. They were waiting for him to come and to ask him what they had heard. Here we're told it's the circumcision party. Now, exactly what is this party? We wish it would be a little bit more descriptive. Is this the total of the church in Jerusalem? Is this a small sector of them that were maybe a little bit more zealous it was likely that the circumcision party was made up of Jewish believers who were also sorting out in their minds this new mission to the Gentiles. They were being very careful with how Jews were to relate to Gentiles given those Old Testament laws of clean and unclean. And that was the issue. 
Jews were not supposed to go in and eat in fellowship with, un, uh, with uh, uncircumcised, the, the Gentiles, because it would make them ceremonially unclean. And so this was certainly not an issue that was unique just to them, although they brought this criticism, you can see that word there, this criticism to Peter, and this would have been a criticism both doctrinally and socially. This is an issue, this is a problem, we're bringing it to you. But even though as they're bringing it to Peter, do we remember what Peter's reaction was when God told him it was okay to receive the Gentiles and to eat with them? He told the Lord, no. He himself said, Lord, no, may this never be. I have never eaten anything unclean, and I have never gone into a Gentile's home and had a meal in that context, in that scenario, and become unclean. The message from God to Peter was repeated three times, we're told in Acts chapter 10, just so that Peter got the message. So the challenge here seems to me to be very reasonable by this um, sect, this circumcision party, and not unreasonable. And I say this because commentators kind of go back and forth. Are these really zealous people, and is this just a small handful, or is it all of them? I I think it's more generic. I think it's all of them. They want to know from these stories that they've heard, is this what happened, and how could this be? In essence, they wondered how Peter could break the dietary laws that had been part of Jewish life for over 1,500 years. How can you break those laws in this manner? These laws helped draw a line of distinction between Jew and Gentile. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, that was a visible picture of a separation of clean and unclean. It was to be a very visible testimony on the earth that there is a clean God in heaven, a holy God in heaven that cannot fellowship with the common, the unclean of the earth. So this was a very visible picture that is now being dissolved as God tells Peter, no longer call unclean what I have declared clean. And so these Jews, these believing Jews in Jerusalem, had yet to fully grasp the magnitude of the entire gospel. Now, as we say this, this was not a trial like the one that Peter had been put on in Acts chapter 4 and 5 when he came before the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. This was an exchange of sincere dispute. They were looking for a sincere and honest answer from Peter And to me, this signals that it was a healthy exchange within a healthy environment. Well, what is Peter going to do? He gets to Jerusalem. He's confronted about this. He has a number of different options how he could handle this. Let's look on in verse 4 and find out how did Peter handle this question, these disputes, uh, this disagreement that they had with him and his eating with Gentiles. Acts 11 verse 4 says this, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. How is he going to face this challenge? I just want to point out a couple of things that he didn't do. I know these are obvious, but I think they're worth mentioning because this is a healthy environment which Peter welcomes these things. He does not handle this situation by claiming superiority over them, thinking that he's above their questions. And and 
Could we say that in a human way, I think Peter could have done this. He could have said, don't you know all of these miracles that God has worked through me? I mean, I I am the leader of the Christian church. I don't need to answer to your questions. He, He could have put off that kind of a vibe. He also doesn't look down on the people here. He doesn't avoid their concerns and their questions. He doesn't say, hey, look, the Gentiles received the word. That's all you need to know. Get over it. Let's move on. And maybe most significantly, and probably something that we see very often in churches today or in our context and environment today, Peter didn't write them off and go somewhere else and just start his own ministry. He doesn't go to a place where no one would question him. He doesn't do any of those things. Instead, in a very healthy way, not feeling personally challenged, he takes the time to carefully answer their questions. They respected him with questions, which may or may not have been done in in perfect tone or perfect manner. We don't know. But he respected them with honest and sincere and careful answers. So he was composed and he gave a careful explanation. Now let's look on in verses 5 through 10 and see what it is that Peter shares with these people about their concern. Verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being led down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter's going to begin to share something from his own personal experience. He's going to, as part of his defense or as part of his explanation to them to say, this is what God was doing in my life. This was a personal experience that I had. And he begins to tell this vision. So this is an exact retelling of what happened in Acts chapter 10. These are definitely sensational events that he explains this vision of this sheet coming down with these animals in it and the command to eat and his refutation to the Lord of why he couldn't do it. And then the Lord's reply to him. These are all unique to Peter. And we certainly take note of the obvious here. God did not give that same vision to all of the people that he's sharing this with. He gave this to Peter alone. We notice here how Peter shares his own struggle. He shares his own reluctance to initially accept that message from God that it's okay for Jews to now eat with the Gentiles. Verse 8, he says, Lord, this can't be. Verse 10, it's repeated three times just to be sure he gets it. So as part of Peter's answer, he shares how God worked in his own life to teach him this truth. But can we just stop for a moment and say, personal experience is not enough to bring forward as an open and shut case. 
The subjectivity of personal experience needs to be carefully weighed against other objective anchor points. You know, our personal experiences cannot become mandates for other people's lives. So Peter's experiences here are validated by events that are taking place and working outside of himself. And here's where we read on in verses 11 through 15. As he's answering, he's also showing how God worked outside of him and validated this by God working in other people's lives. Look with me at verses 11 through 15. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he, ta- he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. You know, the number of independent testimonies here is very important. Peter, personal, his personal experience was simultaneously being verified by the experience of Cornelius and these other people present. So at the very same time that Peter is receiving this vision from the Lord of the sheet coming down, three messengers show up unmistakably sent from Cornelius. So all of this is happening at the same time. And then Peter takes six of his own friends with him who would be eyewitnesses of this encounter. So we notice here that Peter's explanation and the way that he builds his case has little to do with his own personal authority. He didn't pull the Peter card and say, this is how it is because this is what I've experienced. Let's move on. These were not his own wishes. He's retelling the work that God is doing. His case is being meticulously and carefully built around explaining what God is doing and how he is making it plainly known to everyone. Peter has nothing to hide. He has nothing to conceal. He simply, as verse 4 said, he's explaining it to them carefully and in order. And I would just say, as we look at this here, and as we think about the spiritual realm and how healthy this context and situation is, we should always be very careful and leery of any spiritual leader who gathers followers around him or her based upon their own private experiences or interpretations. That seems to be always a recipe for disaster. We normally call things like that cults. It's what they end up in. You know, there's one person who gets to dictate all of the message from God to everyone else. Very unhealthy. Happens all the time. That is not what Peter is doing here. So let's be weary and be mindful and be wise about how we view Christian culture and the Christian world and whose teachings, whose books, whose podcasts it is that we listen to. Certainly, I would say run from those who think that it is a personal experience and their own private interpretation 
that dictates things for everyone else. Finally, though, we have one last validation from Peter. It comes in verses 16 to 17, okay? He has shared his own experiences, but he also said, look around all of the other things that God is independently doing that is verifying what I'm sharing with you. And then finally, he validates it by God's word alone. He he anchors this to God's bare but very trustworthy word. Verses 16 and 17. He said, and I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would stand in God's way? This final piece of evidence here that Peter gives in his explanation is this. All of these events, all of these experiences were in line with exactly what Jesus Christ had promised. That there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this is what was happening. These events were the fulfillment of the promises of God and that was the proof that convinced Peter to accept the Gentiles into full fellowship. Before we get to Peter's final change of mind, let's not miss the simple and beautiful description of God's work here in verse 17, that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was preached. He was preached in all of his fullness, that Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, actively obeying the Father in all ways, going to the cross as a substitute for sinners, dying a death in our place, bearing the wrath of God on his shoulders, and being buried, raised again, validating all that he had preached. It was Jesus Christ in his fullness, in his person, and in his work that was preached. And it was these Gentiles who believed this truth, Just as the Jews had believed it, it made no difference. There was no distinction. Any person who believed this truth, God blessed them with the gift of his Holy Spirit. This is what Peter says in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that took place, making no distinction. This was God's work God's gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the same work he does for everyone who believes. There's no distinction. This settled it for Peter. It was because of this that he testified to these people. Who am I to stand in God's way? If this is what God is doing, my life and my preferences are submitted to God's work, God's way. This is what he's telling them. In the end, this is the final answer that Peter gives to them. Who am I to stand in God's way? This is what he did. Finally, we look at verse 18 as we close. What about this dispute? Well, it's a healthy environment where questions can be asked. It's a healthy environment where respectful answers are given. Finally, the way that this all concludes and comes together is beautiful in verse 18. It's a healthy church environment where the truth is then celebrated and God is glorified. 
where you had people who were disputing at the first. They were criticizing Peter. Now together they are praising the Lord. Look with me in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an outcome from this whole ordeal. This exchange between Peter and this group, it had the potential of being very divisive. But in the end, it turned into an occasion to unify, to agree, and to praise the Lord together. The respectful, careful, and orderly explanation that was given by Peter was ex accepted by the people. This circumcised party, and it, they had no other questions. It says they fell silent. They had nothing more to say. That was convincing. God was working in you. God was working outside of you. God was working in fulfillment of the promises of his word. We have no more dispute. We have no more disagreement. So the group took up Peter's attitude that was, who are we to stand in God's way? If this is the Lord's work, let it be done. I want to say one final word about this phrase that's here in verse 18, that God had granted repentance that leads to life. This repentance unto life, God had granted to the Gentiles a turning of heart, a turning away from paganism, a turning away from atheism, a turning away from self-dependence, a turning away from love of sin and anything that was displeasing to the Lord. And God had granted to them a turning to Jesus Christ, a turning to the truth, a turning to a rest in his salvation and the forgiveness that Jesus gives and a turning to all of this in joy and in obedience to him. This cannot be a work of man. We cannot do this on our own. This must be a work of God that he grants and that he blesses. He grants us repentance so that we turn away from everything that we think we know in every way that we want to dictate our own life and we turn to Christ and say it's all of him. It's in his death on the cross. It's in his righteousness. It's his way, not my own. God granted to these Gentiles repentance that leads to eternal life. This can only come from a work of God. And he did it. Well, what a sequence of events we've looked at this morning. This text began with criticism and a dispute over fellowship with Gentiles. But... Both parties considered the work of God and what God was doing and concluded together, how can we stand in God's way? This is his working. This led to great unity and praise of God. And from this yields all kinds of fruit in the church, fruit like impartiality, fruit like acceptance of all people, fruit like deep love and care for one another despite our differences, all of that comes from having proper theology together and learning together. 
So I just close with this question, how about us? How about me? How about you? Do you carefully and sincerely bring questions in your life? Do you patiently and lovingly give answers to others who have questions for you? And above all, does the Spirit of God and the work of God have ultimate say in our questions and our answers so that we align correctly and are unified in the work of God? Only then will we end up at the end of this text, just as they did in that day, that we would glorify God despite disputes and despite differences because we are looking not at ourselves, we are looking not at others, but all of our eyes are on God in Jesus Christ and the work that he is doing. This is glorifying to, the, to God and it brings unity to his church. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word. How you validated and verified all that you were doing in the life of Peter and the life of those uh, early believers there in Jerusalem. Lord, it's the same for us today as we go to your word and we anchor our beliefs and our unity in your word. We pray together to discern what you are doing. Lord, I pray that you would use this message and use the text and the power of your word to show us that Christ truly is the way to eternal life, that it is believing and taking him in, that no matter if we're young or old, live here or across the world, whether we've sinned a long time in many ways or we're become believing as a young child that, Lord, it is the salvation through Jesus Christ that gifts us with eternal life. Above that, Lord, also we, we look to this text to say, would you keep us a church in unity, that we know how to dispute and have differences in a way that would bring us to glorify you for all that you've done and your goodness to us. Lord, press this text on our minds and hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.